Welcome to Made in the Hamptons. I'm your host, Jill Lawrence, and this week we're talking about all things real estate with a very special guest. But before we get to the show, I want to tell you about Hamptons HVAC. In the Hamptons, you always need an honest, reliable company to help you when your heating and air conditioning doesn't work. Well, we have the company for you, and it's Hamptons Air HVAC Company that provides personalized service and overall customer satisfaction. Each service tech is very knowledgeable and can help you when you need it most. Hampton Air's mission is to become your number one choice and the leading force in heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Visit their website at www.hamptonsair.co or call 631-655-8120 and let them know Made in the Hamptons sent you today to receive 30% off a humidifier install or 30% off a Remy Halo UV light. Hamptons Air does the right thing when no one else is looking. Once again, it's hamptonsair.co or call 631-655-8120. Now back to the show. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, Jonathan Miller of Miller Samuel. I've been reading his research and writing about real estate appraisals and anything related to residential real estate for many years. His data and analytics powers the back end of the biggest real estate agencies in the nation. He always has the best insight into the state of the current real estate market and is able to explain it in a way that anyone could understand. Also joining the conversation is Adam Hofford of Douglas Elliman here in the Hamptons with his specific knowledge of what is happening on the ground with buyers and sellers across the East End. We talked about everything Hamptons real estate related, including whether to expect housing prices to drop further, spoiler alert, they're not, what buyers and sellers should expect, falling mortgage rates, using Zestimate, aspirational pricing versus market pricing, and advice for buyers and sellers in today's market. If you're at all interested in real estate, whether it's buying or selling a house, or just want to know what is happening in the market today, you'll definitely enjoy this conversation. Well, welcome to Made in the Hamptons. I'm your host, Jill Lawrence, and here today with me is Adam Hoffer, a real estate advisor in the Hamptons, and also a co-worker of mine at Douglas Elliman, along with our very special guest, Jonathan Miller who is CEO and co-founder of Miller Samuel, a real estate appraisal and consulting firm that was founded in 1986. His data and analytics is behind many of the largest brokerage firms' information on the state of the housing market. So welcome to both of you. Great to be here. Thanks. Thanks, Jill. Appreciate it. It's great to have both of you here today. Jonathan, I, I wanted to start talking about the general markets and how it pertains to the real estate market with a possible peak in interest rates after the single biggest weekly decline in 40 years from just above 7% to approximately 6.6% a few days ago. And then Goldman Sachs coming out with a report last week saying that they don't think that there's going to be a recession in 2023 because of excess liquidity on corporate and private balance sheets as well as slack in the labor force, on top of the overall repricing of the markets, whether it's crypto, stocks, venture capital, or real estate, no one seems to know what anything is worth. And there seems to be a lot of uncertainty, which we know is the enemy of the real estate world. 
So how are you seeing things and what are we headed into over the next few months? Well, I I think the, uh, you know, the Fed has already signaled that there's probably two more rate hikes ahead, but at smaller levels than the four hikes of 75 basis points that we just went through. The market is sort of, you know, the, the, the actual market rate of rates has been pulling back a bit. Uh, so I, I think there's still more upward rate pressure ahead, but perhaps, you know, my crystal ball is held together with duct tape because, you know, ultimately, <laughs> who knows? Uh, but, you know, I, I think we're coming near the end for whatever that's worth. You know, a lot of, you know, a lot of housing markets that are less mortgage dependent that are, you know, have a higher share of cash you know, from the beginning, you've said, hey, this isn't uh, a big deal anyway, but consumers of high-end real estate are also uh, very connected to financial markets, and that has been impacted by Fed policy. I think the big unknown is whether rates, uh, it's not so much that rates are coming to an end, but how long they remain elevated, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when, you know, when and if there'll be cuts in the future. I mean, you know, the beginning of this rapid run-up feeling a little bit like 2018 um, in that, you know, just as soon as the Fed was aggressively raising rates, they began cutting rates. doesn't feel like that's the the short-term scenario, but it does, it does seem that we're coming to the end of this uh, rate rise adventure, which, you know, the, you know, you, you said it, uh, very clearly, uh, housing doesn't like uncertainty. And what do consumers do when they're not certain or they have too much certainty, uncertainty to grapple with? They pause, they hold, they wait. And and that's the condition that we find ourselves in right now. So there have been analysts who are calling for prices to reset another 20%. Do you agree with that? Oh, no. Um, okay. So, you know, it's fascinating. I'm not saying, you know, that there isn't, you know, doubt, won't be doubt, some downward pressure on price. But what is, uh, you know, I've been, not to date myself, but I've been through a bunch of cycles. And every time the music stops, inventory is piled to the sky. And this cycle, it's just the opposite. In fact, uh, for Douglas Elman, I cover about oh, more than 40 housing markets with more coming and it's almost the same scenario everywhere. I know we like to think certain markets like the Hamptons are unique in, and they, they are in certain ways. But in terms of, you know, sort of the macro take, it's very consistent across the U.S. where we're seeing inventory levels uh, that are far lower than pre-pandemic conditions. So uh, the Hamptons is looking at you know, numbers that are 50 to 60% below pre-pandemic in terms of supply. And what that does is provide a firmer underpinning under prices. It doesn't mean that prices won't necessarily decline, um, but not at, not in the context of a correction like we saw after 9-11, or not 9-11, but after um, the financial crisis where inventory was elevated. And that right. is not the, not, it's not the story. And not only that, because we had an office said we had rates too low for too long, and I was saying it, you know, a year and a half ago that rates should be in the fives or sixes by now. What that ended up doing was it ended up 
causing uh, homeowners to be very wedded to their low rate, whether it's through a refi or a prior purchase. So they're less likely to come into the market or it's, or, you know, in, in, in terms of sort of panicking and running out and dumping their listings, they don't have to. Plus equity is like the highest in history, home equity. Right. So they're not under stress and unemployment's still really low. It's not, That's like, right. it's not like the economy, you know, has plunged into a deep, dark, a whole. Um, so it, it's a, it's funny because, you know, people are so focused on comparing against maybe the last big downturn. But my standard joke these days is I hate people that say this time it's different, but this time it's different. It's, and it's even difficult to do a comparison back to 2019 because it was or even do a year over year comparison because you're overstating the right. change and that's in the market. Something that I've, been, I've been talking about a lot is that the uh, and I find this fascinating, uh, sort of you know nationally, not just locally, is that the year-over-year comparisons, which are the sort of the baseline comparison, because you remove seasonality by comparing year over year. Twenty twenty-one was a rocket ship, mm. so we're comparing it's a rocket ship, and and we're seeing, you know, we're looking at that as you know as a basis of comparison. Um, you know, for example, in the Hamptons on a co- on contract basis, single family sales are down almost 50%. But last year and part of the year before sales are up, you know, 100% or, you know, some, you know, not quite 100%, but they're up in a huge way. And so the comparison now is disconnected. And we should be looking more towards comparisons against pre-pandemic than uh, the last year. I don't know about Adam, but, you know, I talked to some buyers that are expecting prices to fall, but there usually is a lag of maybe one to two years before sellers really capitulate to market conditions. And then they just start chasing prices down. There always seems to be a lag. There, There is. I mean, it doesn't mean there's like, you know, minor changes and all that. We're certainly seeing that, uh, what you could get a house for today, the same house would have been more money nine months ago. But the overall market itself, first of all, credit conditions, banks never lost their mind in the cycle. Like uh, during the financial crisis, you just needed, you know, the old joke is you just need a pulse or be able to fog a mirror. It wasn't like that in this case. This wasn't sort of fast and loose lending. Banks never lost their mind. Right. Um, And as a result, we have, you know, distressed real estate is nominal and actually declining. We're not going to have a banking crisis on the other side of this. That's why I, I say this is very different. Um, and then it also depends, I think, and and I'm not predicting this or expecting this, but if the, the Fed was to start really worrying about, you know, causing a recession and they begin cutting, and I'm not suggesting they will near term, but I'm just saying theoretically they did, I bet you we have another housing boom, you know, that I think um, so much is dependent on the direction of rates at this moment uh, right. more than they typically are. So even with a looming recession, it's not an indicator for a housing recession in any way. Well, in many ways, I think housing as a sort of a brushstroke statement is kind of in a recession and the rest of the economy isn't. That in many ways, the housing 
decline uh, that we've seen in terms of the drop in activity has created, you know, tremendous, much more pressure on the middle class and lower wage earners than in the mid and upper sort of income. Um, And part of that is because the more wealth you have in general, the more mobile you are. And this is a, you know, remote, you know, it's a housing market that's been redefined by the ability to work remotely. And, uh, and the Hamptons, not unlike Florida, have benefited tremendously in terms of the market potentially being, or, you know, having been restructured in terms of morphing from this luxury second home market to a, uh, um, you know, what I call a co-primary market, which is people that had second primary residences um, outside of the city. That leans into my next question about the Hamptons market specifically. Adam, what are you seeing these days in the Hamptons real estate market? Well, I think I want to say I echo everything that, that Jonathan said there. And those are all those are all facts. The Hamptons definitely not rate dependent um, because, you know, our buyers, you know, access to to various platforms to get money if they don't have the cash, um, which is not always consistent with with the interest rate. But, you know, definitely a heavy, heavy influx of cash or, you know, somebody who's looking to purchase a home out here and maybe looking at the pause right now as an opportunity to to get a better deal than they would have six or nine months ago. And, you know, maybe moving forward with the current interest rate, and then they'll they'll address it down the road, knowing that just you know getting the best prices, they're better off that way. A few other things, you know, the inventory. This is the second fall in a row that we all thought the inventory would would start to swell, and it hasn't. Right. Mm. So that yep. um, that is again keeping keeping the prices. At an, at an all-time high in most cases um, and keeping sort of, you know, that supply and demand push in the same position that it that has been. And I think, you know, the only real, well, not the only real change, but, you know, one of the big changes is, Jonathan said, it was, was the pause, right? So, I mean, there's definitely been over the last 60 days this sense of pause, but I think it's just people stepping back to take a look at, you know, what's happening around us figure out, you know, how they're going to react to it. And then they're going to move forward with whatever they planned on doing two months or, or two years ago. You know, there's a huge contingency of of people out there that wanted to buy in 2020 or 2021, you know, either got pushed to the sidelines or, you know, put themselves there. And, you know, to me, in my experience, like, all the buyers that I'm working with right now, like that's the next wave of buyers is they really wanted to do something, but they tried or they didn't want to get caught up in the hysteria. And now, now they're presenting themselves. Um, now, so now that untenable frenzy of bidding wars has moved out, you know, the possibility is open for people that maybe just didn't get in on that wave. It definitely feels a little easier. Um, mm-hmm. What's interesting, though, is, you know, what we can see on the street, for lack of a better term, is that does does a house sell the first week or two that it that it comes on the market? Not really, but it's still selling quicker than it ever has before. It's just, you know, not everybody is is out here like they were last year. So if something hits the market, it's not like you're going to have a line of people looking at it the next day. Now people have to work around their schedules a little bit more and 
and because this is a secondary area, you know, it, sometimes it takes time to get here. But when the buyers present themselves, they're they're ready, willing, and able. The other part of that, I think, is buyers have become a little bit more selective in houses. You know, houses that are you know might not be in the absolute best location or in the best possible shape, you know, or easily duplicated. Those are the ones I think that you're you're seeing the pricing sort of recess a little bit. And those are the ones that, you know, people are saying, well, I don't need to do this today. So I'm happy to come back and, and look at some others next week. Those, those are the, the biggest changes, I think, in, the, in this environment. And Jonathan, how does that play into the, the term that you use, co-primary residence between New York City and we'll call Hamptons the suburbs, for lack of a better word. Sure, Just sure. T- toggling between those two homes has that contributed to a, a flatter trend in the Hamptons of pending or closed home sales, I should say, versus new inventory in the Hamptons market? I see it a little, don't explain it quite that way. So I look at it as, so for example, and this is a bit dated, but it was the third quarter, which ended at the end of September. The mix, meaning the market share of sales 5 million and above was the highest market share in history. So it we're, it's not like we're seeing this sort of shift to smaller homes now, you know, arguably, you know, data that's a month and a half old, but I just quite see that yet. I just see the, the pace of transactions slowing down to, uh, to Adam's point earlier, and I think I said it earlier as well, uh, inventory is down 59.2% from the third wow. quarter of nineteen. 60% less, that provides a much firmer underpinning under pricing than you might typically see in a market that's, uh, you know, has this external, sort of this external force, which is, uh, you know, the rise in rates and the uncertainty that that has brought. And in many ways, while, you know, cash buyers are skewed to more affluent, it's interesting because, for example, you know, pricing, which is sort of the caboose on the end of the train is like to say, even though trains don't have cabooses anymore, meaning that sales and inventory sort of lead the way. Um, but median prices essentially double, in, mm. you know, it's a million, it's double what it was pre-pandemic. That's not all appreciation. That's also a shift in the mix that housing and the types of product that was sold, you know, skewed larger. And that makes so much sense in the construct of talking about remote, um, because as I was saying earlier, the more wealth, the more your your uh, weight, the higher your wages, the higher probability that you're more remote. And this is a a market that has benefited greatly from remote, disproportionately from the advent of remote. And the sort of the toothpaste is not going back in the tube or whatever the saying is for that, like that, the genie's out of the bottle, whatever. Like there's no reversing that in my view, as you can see with, you know, companies that are still having a hard time sort of convincing their employees to come back to to something closer to pre-pandemic. So there's still a lot of things to figure out in this sort of post lockdown world. And um, Remote markets, you know, markets like the Hamptons or Florida 
I think are, uh, you know, will continue to be sort of disproportionately better performing than if this were a pre-pandemic environment, just because of that, the more, the greater affluence and the uh, drives sort of a larger product that's being sold. Um, I don't think we're going backwards. And then the other thing is, even though, and I'm sort of rambling here a bit, because um, I just want to point out that even with uh, the slowdown activity, about 28% of the transactions are are bidding wars, meaning that they're selling higher than the last asking price. It's not like there aren't bidding wars anymore. There just aren't as many. Mm. Um, and and I find that also amazing. And it's, but then if you compare that to Southern California, for example, you know, San Diego County, the southernmost county um, on the California shore, um, their bidding wars in the third quarter were 60%. Wow. Um, down from 65%. Uh, you know, all markets, you know, obviously, you know, have different factors, different influences, but it speaks to the the incredible shortage of supply and how a lot of times the macro story we're seeing uh, overstates sort of what's happening on the ground. Adam, are you finding in the Hamptons, what is causing that shortage of inventory, if you will? Is it people not trading up, which I know happens a lot in the Hamptons? What are you attributing that to? I mean, it's hard to say, but I think that, you know, one of the one of the big factors is a lot of people were pulled forward during COVID. So a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of people that might have been sellers this year or next year were lured into selling the house and taking advantage of the pricing and the audience and sold during COVID. So that's definitely one. I think for people that already owned homes here that, you know, as a a secondary home, either fell in love all over again with the area or, you know, reconfigured their house and started to use it a lot more than they ever did in the past. And they presumably would have held on longer than they might have. And I think the last two falls, like I said, we were all anticipating that a fair amount of those COVID spur of the moment purchases, uh, people would, would, you know, come out of the ether and be putting these houses back on the market. Mm-hmm. And it just has not happened. T1 here and there, but not like, I think a lot of people were relying on that for inventory last year. Like, oh yeah, of course, somebody will, you know, realize that this isn't for them or they have to go back to work and, you know, those homes will start to hit the market. You're not seeing it. I think things that, that's happening a little bit is, you know, you have sellers that miss the boat. Those houses are hitting the market with 2021 pricing and they're not really houses that command that sort of pricing. The A plus properties, they're really special turnkey homes, things like that are still selling very quickly and for a lot of money. But as I said before, if it's, if it's a little more generic and maybe it's in an area that's, not everybody's favorite and what have you, or historically was not a quick sell. Like those folks are putting their homes on the market at these prices where people are, are pausing and not really jumping on them right away. They're leaving it up to a, a lot more consideration than they would a year ago. So, you know, even when you take that already low inventory, a good portion of that might be overpriced, which is making the real inventory even smaller. 
And sellers have a tendency to think that prices are linear, but we know that it's... <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way yeah. to put it. Especially their house. Right, uh, right. Yeah. yeah. And actually, I just want to sort of double down on what Adam said about pull forward, where, you know, you had rates, as I said earlier, uh, too low for too long in the sense that, you know, the only solution would have been you're essentially... You know, if you think about inventory in the context of remove new construction, just look at existing housing stock, supply was obliterated in the Hamptons. Mm. It wasn't, you know, inventory was a little bloated going into the pandemic. Prior couple of years were not robust years for the Hamptons. They were sort of mediocre and inventory was a little elevated when you stick a low mortgage rate on a market for perhaps too long a period of time, inventory is this sort of living, breathing thing uh, that's based on the life cycles of the the occupants and it needs time to sort of percolate. And it wasn't given that. And um, as a result, it was like wiped clean. And then when we start going into a weaker uh, condition. And let's face it, I mean, what the Fed is doing is literally taking an economic baseball bat and trying to inflict damage on the economy to fight inflation. And by doing that, you know, in, in theory, you know, they're they're slowing down everything. But really, most of what they're slowing down tends to be the housing market because there's sort of this knee-jerk reaction to mortgage rates. And then the world around us, around this real estate economy is at least so far is, you know, with some signs of weakening, but still not weakening anywhere like the Fed would like. So that's why I think rates, while I think there's an expectation that the the increases are, there's not too many in front of us and they're going to be more modest, um, but that just doesn't mean that rates are going to come down soon. But even so, that makes people even more wedded to their low lower rates and reluctant to right. bring uh, their properties into the market, just like, you know, Adam's point of, um, and then they sort of poach the, the the low rates poach from the future. We see that in, in New York City, where, you know, young couples traditionally move out to the suburbs, become first-time buyers from the rental market in Manhattan. And uh, they, you know, essentially a five-year migration pattern was compressed into like 60 days, <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and and so there's all these massive distortions that are going to kind of mess around with what our expectations is. You know, generally speaking, low inventory means uh, lower probability of any kind of price correction. And I think people that are waiting around for a significant discount or deal are probably wasting their time. The house that gets the significant discount is not the one they're going to want anyways. Correct. That's the bottom line. Uh, and this is not the takeaway after the Lehman moment, you know, after the financial cri- great financial crisis, you know, really took off in 2009. Uh, there was a, cr- a big price correction because inventory was piled to the sky, as I said yes. earlier. And, and that is not the scenario uh, these days. And so now I just wanted to move on to the appraisal side, uh, Jonathan, and just talk about the automation of housing numbers, also known as Zestimate, versus human appraisal. Sure. 
Because we know uh, a lot of our Hamptons homeowners are, are using this. Sure. Zestimates are, uh, their, their accuracy rate, uh, median accuracy rate, and, and I'm putting median in quotes in bold and with an <laughs> underline uh, to the word median. So their median accuracy rate is 2% nationally. So that means that the Zestimate, is within 2% of what the property actually sells for 50% of the time. So what that means is because the median half the time it's within 2% and half the time it's not. So the inference there is wildly different than what a consumer is reading. So you have that, but it gets better. Um, (laughs) It's only within 2%. It's only within 2% if it's actually listed for sale. So if it's not listed for sale, the national median accuracy rate is 7%. So to get from seven to two, they need the brokers to price the property. And that's why this this whole thing is silly. Uh, It is, you know, you look at it and say, okay, so just your house that's not on the market, um, the median accuracy rate is 7%. So 50% of the time it's within 7%. And 50%, it's not. That could be, it could be off by 50, 60, 90, 100%. Like it's a, and so that's the, that's the way to think of of a Zestimate is it's really not a serious tool. And it's really uh, super, it's really highly dependent on the accuracy and the reliability and the granularity of public record, which varies, you know, by municipality. We thought that, Zillow or whoever started it was creating some unique form of uh, collecting data or creating yeah. uh, analysis, but really they're just using the same numbers that we're all using. Well, uh, are they are they are they are collecting you know the hedonics like the you know the amenities of all properties in the U.S. Like they they have a database of that, but their actual accuracy rate is not is terrible uh, uh, and it's even worse if it's not listed and it's only sort of reasonable half the time so I, you know overheard people in like public transit like in the city and saying hey you know you know I track the value of my home every day and it's like that's not <laughs> you know it it, 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 it it was originally intended to be something sort of fun uh, to play mm. with. And they actually changed their algorithms uh, with a few years ago to place incredible reliance on the list price to get them sort of in the neighborhood of what the price should be. I always, uh, you know, sort of for fun, you can see like a house, I'm making, you know, sort of making up an example where it's it's a uh, million dollars and then the seller puts it on the market for $2 million dollars. And then this estimate the next day goes to $2 million. Mm. And then let's say it doesn't sell because it's overpriced. Say it's only worth a million five. The day after it's taken off the market or within a few days, it drops back down to say a million dollars. Like, what is that? Um, <laughs> uh, you really would a, have to a, check it every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, there's sort of a randomness to it. And I, you know, I think everybody wants to just press a button and, Hey, here's this massive asset and let's, you know, press a, press a button. We have all this data, but 
you know, valuation, I'm not making it rocket science, but it's certainly, um, it's, I think, a little bit, you know, it's a little bit more difficult than just coming up with an algorithm that has so many variations of input. Well, there's just too many nuances, especially out here, that, right. you know, go into the property value that, a, you know, a computer could never figure out. I mean, those numbers are largely based off of, right, square footage and, and things like that. I mean, two people right. on the they're, same they're, street. They're all objective, you know, not subjective. So it can't detect that 50 feral cats lived in the house, uh, uh, you know, sure. or living in the house. Right. We could, we could both own an acre of land on the same street, but mine could be riddled with, with wetlands and virtually unbuildable. So it's, it's worth a fraction right. of what the other one is, right? And then in terms of pricing, you had, I'm going to go ahead and say, coined the phrase aspirational pricing at one point. And I yes, wanted to- I, I did. did. Oh, okay, <laughs> I, great. And, I, and, I, and I'm trying, aspirational pricing, co-primary, like every like year, year and a half, and I figured like I could live on the royalties for the rest of my life, but <laughs> it never really works out that way. Well, we all seem to use it now and aspirational yeah. pricing versus market pricing yeah. and how this has changed post-pandemic era in the luxury market, particularly in the Hamptons. The way to think of uh, aspirational also becomes sort of a, this is pre-pandemic with aspirational pricing. The problem with it is that there was safety in numbers. So, you know, you bought a home for $10 million and you put three into it and you put it on the market for 45. It never, it doesn't sell. And your neighbors around you do the same thing. And they're like, hey, well, my neighbor priced for 45. I'm a similar, I have even more land. So I'm going to say 50, but all along it's maybe worth 15. And, and it sort of is contagious. So what happens is all these people never sell their home. Uh, we had that same issue in Greenwich, Connecticut, in the backcountry where all the biggest states are. Uh, everybody was pricing six or $7 million houses at $15 million for years, and mm. like 15 years, and, and hardly any sales. And then during the pandemic, post-lockdown, you know, the market surged and a lot of that property with a little discounting uh, flew off the market and was cleared. But it took 15 years for the market yeah. to catch up and a global pandemic. Because people got anchored to that higher pricing. Yeah, you get comfortable with it. You know, people, that's, you know, with what you said in the beginning of this, you know, people are uncomfortable with, you know, with uncertainty, right? And and so uh, you become anchored to it's personal. You become anchored to a number and no matter how rational somebody is and how hardcore the, the data is showing you otherwise, if it's an optional, you know, you're not forced to move or you don't need to move. You wait, you wait or you hunker down until you feel better. One of the things that I found in some of our analysis, it takes, it takes an average of about 15 months for a seller who is overpriced to capitulate, you know, to the market and not feel like they left money on the table. It's like, you know, 12 to 18 months, uh, call it, where they're literally anchored. So anything, you know, that's, you know, it sells for less than that, you know, like they gave it away when in fact they were never priced correctly to begin with. Right, because it's just money on paper due to the equity run-up, let's say, 
you know, in 2021. Yeah. yeah or it's just, it's, or it's just a wrong number that they're just mm-hmm. sort of wedded to uh, yeah. because their neighbor priced incorrectly and yeah. didn't, but you know, they don't factor in that, Hey, they never sold it at that price. The market didn't accept it. So anyway, it's, a, it's interesting. I think, you know, there was probably a lot of that happening uh, during the sort of frenzy period we came out of. And I suspect that, you know, there's been a little time for people to start getting their arms around the new reality. And I think the reference point here is that 2021, as I said, was a rocket ship. It is not a basis of comparison. Um, right. The pandemic era, you know, the early days, that is not an anchor point. Like, hey, we've been driving on the Autobahn and we got off of the expressway, you know, the exit and we're going really slow now. You know, the Autobahn is not, was never a sustainable, that was a temporary, as an anomaly. And that is not the market. Like, we're not in a weaker, you know, in the context of the the rocket ship, yeah, prices are weak, much weaker. But that is not the benchmark, because that was a once in a, you know, generation sort of upward Absolutely. You know, rocket ship. Um, and it's important to have the right context in this market. Right. Adam, do you see a shift from the aspirational pricing model down more realistic to market pricing? Well, I mean, listen, those those folks are always going to be there, right? I mean, those are the same people that are looking (laughs) at those estimates. It's just, you know, just because you're you're on the same, you know, street doesn't necessarily mean your house is, is worth the same as someone else's. And I think that's, you know, that is like the biggest issue right now with some new inventory hitting the market is that you have, you know, the aspirational pricing would be the people that definitely missed the boat last year. And, but they're looking at, at last year's numbers and they're of course referencing that as standard because it's the absolute highest. We just have to explain to them, like Jonathan said, I mean, that was a, that was a really not a once in a lifetime opportunity, but that was a, you know, very special moment in time. And the, this frenzy was driving these folks to say yes to just about anything. And now the biggest message to sellers is that the audience is still there. Plenty of ready, willing, and able buyers, uh, a lot of them actually, but they're going to take a little bit longer of a look. So the pricing has to make more sense. One of the things I noticed recently that I feel like I didn't talk about it at all last year was people asking about comps. And mm-hmm. last year, you were able to price a house based more on what else was available for a similar price, right? So you could really say, if you were bringing a 3,000 square foot, you know, five bedroom home to market, let's look and see what else is available that's like it and where they're priced, and we'll price against that. Now, it's, let me, I need to see some comps to, to determine if this price makes sense or not. Right. So, you know, the the aspirational pricing, I mean, it's, it's always going to be there, right? It's always going to be like a little bit of one of our, our uphill battles. And um, I think, you know, one of the things about, you know, you build a house for, buy something for 10, you put five into it and you list it for 30. Those are always going to be around two. But a lot of times, you know, what people don't realize because they only see it on the surface, but what's happening behind the scenes is that's a person that says, yeah, I'll I would sell it for X, right? So all of a sudden it becomes a $30 million listing, but the seller really doesn't care if he sells it next week 
or in five years. And just in closing, before we run out of time, I wanted to ask Adam, what would be your advice to a buyer or a seller that's well, I think thinking of doing a transaction get, in the Hamptons? They're both going to get the same advice. And that is, it's not 2019 and it's not 2021. So it means something different for each of them. But you know, I think the best way to look at the market right now is we're, we're kind of somewhere in between. The good news for the buyers is there's a little less pressure. You're not standing in line at an open house and submitting an offer the next day. So we can get back out there and, and look um, a little bit more on your own terms. And for the first time in two years, there's even an opportunity to negotiate, throw in a contingency. So the atmosphere is, is definitely a little bit easier for, for a buyer than it, than it has been. And I think Jonathan mentioned that. And I think that if anything changes, it's going to, it's going to ramp up real quickly. So, you know, if it's somebody that's been on the sidelines or maybe they're just entering the market, like I would really try to get something done now because I do feel like it's, it's going to change again. Once we get past this small period of uncertainty and if the rates just, you know, dip down a tiny bit more, it's, it will, it will definitely get, it'll, it'll heat up again. And for the sellers, they'll have the opportunity to get more money than you ever have before for your house. But, you know, if it's not standing tall, 100% turnkey, or in an excellent location, you're probably not going to want to, you're not going to get what you could have gotten six or eight months ago, mm-hmm. but you're going to do way better than you would have in 2019, like way better. Right. Cause we haven't so flipped to a buyer's market yet. We're still in a seller's market technically. Yeah. And if, and if, and if you have good product, it's, it's going to sell pretty quickly and at a great number, you know, so, but not in most likely not the first weekend. So, you know, we've got a, Right now, you know, with the sellers, I'm definitely managing those expectations because we don't get an offer within a week or two and they're panicking. You know, we, we do have to recognize that, again, I said it earlier, not everybody is in the Hamptons still just basically, you know, with house shopping as they're the only thing on their agenda. Like they've gone back to work and, and they're, they're in other parts of the country. So it takes a little bit of time, but you, I mean, you'll still do very well as a seller. Well, I want to thank both of you. I think we got a lot covered today and a lot of great insight for our listeners, most of whom are homeowners out here or potential homeowners. So uh, I think we've really helped them out. I just want to thank both of you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much. 